Our Old Testament lesson for this morning is Daniel chapter 5, verses 13 through 31. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king of my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning is from Romans, the first chapter, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Well, it was a party like no other. The wines flowing freely and the thousand or so royal guests seemed completely oblivious to the fact that within hours the party's host, the Babylonian king Belshazzar, would be dead. And the Persian army will have captured the city and the palace in which his guests are now partying. King Belshazzar and the great Babylonian empire will be no more. They'll go the way of ancient history. Yet the events of this fateful evening should not have come as a surprise to Belshazzar. Yahweh had warned Belshazzar's more famous predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, of this very thing in a dream recorded back in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had seen a gigantic metallic statue with a head of gold representing Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. But that empire would at some point give way to the Persian Empire, represented by the silver arms and the chest of the statue. It was the Hebrew prophet Daniel who, when interpreting the dream, told Nebuchadnezzar of these events yet to transpire. But on this night, Yahweh issues a warning of impending judgment in the form of a mysterious handwritten message which suddenly appeared on the plaster walls of the palace during the party. Daniel is summoned again to the king's palace. This time Daniel is to interpret the mysterious handwritten message which absolutely terrified Belshazzar and his guests. The message does not bring good news to Belshazzar because it is Yahweh's declaration of judgment fulfilling the scene in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, one of the sure signs that God is directing all things to his appointed ends is that the last night of the Babylonian Empire is also the same night in which the intoxicated king ordered that the silver and gold vessels originally taken as spoils of war from the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem be used at this party as vessels with which to toast the Babylonian gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood, stone. These are the very same elements, by the way, which compose the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which was crushed by a rock cut without human hands. That's Christ's kingdom, but which are worshipped by these Babylonian pagans. This is an act of out-and-out sacrilege by Belshazzar, and nothing short of intentional blasphemy of Yahweh. Now, we don't know if Belshazzar knew that this would be the night the empire would fall, because there's no mention of him here leading troops or making any kind of an effort to rally Babylon's defenders. Instead, he makes an intentional effort to mock the God of Israel. 
But Yahweh is not going to be mocked, especially by the likes of Belshazzar. And so Yahweh crashes this party by directing that an angel, or perhaps the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, write a message of warning on the wall of the royal palace for all to see. Warning the king and his guests of sure and certain judgment coming later that very evening. Now when Belshazzar saw the hand of Yahweh, his guests saw the writing. No one present could read it, certainly not the useless court magicians and wise men. And Belshazzar was terribly shaken by the sight of the hand leaving the message, obviously. We're told that all color left his face. They looked faint. They'd have been so shaken he couldn't walk. Well, overhearing their kerfluffle in the palace, the queen mother enters the banquet hall, and she recalls to memory a Hebrew prophet named Daniel, a man who's now well up in years and who likely had not served in the royal court for a long time. Daniel will be summoned. He'll interpret the dream, only to warn Belshazzar that he will die this very evening. And in this, we see again this overarching theme that we've seen throughout the prophecy of Daniel so far. The Yahweh raises up kings and kingdoms, and he removes kings and kingdoms when and how he wills. And so Belshazzar's kingdom will indeed be taken from him and given to another. The point of this incident is to give encouragement to Jewish exiles and living in Babylon because by the next morning, Darius the Mede, or better known as Cyrus, will be in charge and it's he who will issue the decree to allow the Jews to return home to Jerusalem to rebuild both the temple and the city. This too has been ordained by God. Now Daniel 5 includes four different scenes each one sending around the different characters that participate sequentially in the story. The first scene, verses 1 to 6, focuses upon the king's drunken party, with his mocking of Yahweh followed by the dramatic appearance of the mysterious handwriting on the palace wall, which, of course, terrifies Belshazzar. The second scene, verses 7 to 12, the king seeks out someone who can interpret this mysterious handwriting. And the king's wise men, who apparently aren't quite so wise, Um, are unable to read the writing, so the queen mother remembers a former prefect in the royal court, Daniel. He's a Hebrew. He's known for his ability to interpret such things. Maybe he can come and read the writing and interpret for the king. Then the third scene, verses 13 to 29, recounts Daniel's return to the royal palace when he interprets the handwriting and delivers Yahweh's warning of impending judgment upon Belshazzar because of the latter's horrible act of blasphemy and sacrilege. And in the final scene, verses 30 through 31, we learn that Yahweh makes good on his warning as Darius conquers the city that same evening and then claims the entire Babylonian empire as his own. So several weeks ago, we covered the first two scenes this morning. We'll take up the final scenes, our text this morning, and we'll conclude our time in Daniel chapter 5. Now, with that bit of recap in mind, we pick up where we left off of verse 13, when Daniel interprets the handwriting, announcing imminent judgment upon Babylon. Now, this follows, remember, this is meant to be one story, but it follows the the scene previously of this hand appearing on the wall during the party, writing on the white plaster, leaving behind a mysterious message which none of Belshazzar's experts could read. And so verse 13 begins with the arrival of Daniel. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that, Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, 
whom the king my father brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So remember, Daniel's now an elderly man. Daniel had not served in the royal court for some time, perhaps not since the death of Nebuchadnezzar 23 years previously. And Belshazzar probably didn't even think of Daniel until the queen mother mentioned his name and recalled his exploits. Well, Daniel's reputation has preceded him because Belshazzar recalls stories surrounding this Hebrew prophet who had been so useful to Nebuchadnezzar years before. As an exile from Judah, Daniel was brought as a captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in 605. It's now 539 B.C., do the math. It's a long period of time. And it's soon apparent to all in the royal court that the spirit of the gods is in Daniel. Once again, tying Daniel back to the Joseph story of Genesis 37 through 50. Daniel, in a sense, recapitulates the whole account of Joseph while in Egypt. Daniel possessed light understanding and wisdom, which is an indication that Yahweh had given gifts to Daniel, making him his prophet. And these gifts had been given uh, to Daniel by Yahweh to protect Daniel and his three friends from certain death while in exile. Now, from the events recounted early in the evening, Belshazzar mocking Yahweh by using the vessels of the temple to toast the pagan gods, vessels that had been used previously only in the worship of Yahweh. Belshazzar obviously held Yahweh in utter and total contempt. And it's only a result of his fear and his desperation that Daniel now stands before Belshazzar. And nothing is said, but we can imagine the disgust that Belshazzar must have felt having to summon a Hebrew prophet, a prophet of Yahweh, to explain the handwriting, especially after the partying and the sacrilege just described. With his wise men and magicians failing him yet again, in verse 15, Belshazzar admits to Daniel, Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show me the interpretation of the matter, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Well, Daniel had interpreted two dreams that Yahweh had given to Nebuchadnezzar when his own Chaldeans and magicians failed to provide interpretation. Daniel's going to do as he's done twice before. He's going to speak very difficult words as a prophet of Yahweh to a powerful man, a king, who's about to come under the direct judgment of Yahweh. The king, in turn, offers Daniel the symbols of royal power if he can do what Belshazzar had done for Nebuchadnezzar a generation earlier. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. But Daniel has no interest in that kind of power. Daniel is not there to impress Belshazzar. He's come at Belshazzar's urgent request And he's going to get far more than he bargained for because Daniel's going to reveal to him Yahweh's word of imminent judgment. And so according to verse 18, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now there's no material or monetary reward for any prophet called to speak forth God's word Uh, through a prophet uh, in an occasion like this, especially word of judgment. We think of the story of Balaam and Barak in Numbers 22 or 
the words of the prophet Micah in Micah 3.5, who warns the people of Israel against listening to prophets who bring words from God in exchange for something to enhance personal gain. Nothing new under the sun, is there? Yahweh is not going to allow himself or his prophets to become indebted to the likes of a man like Belshazzar. And so with that, Daniel begins to interpret the handwritten message. The first thing Daniel does, verses 18 to 21, is to remind Belshazzar of events we saw back in Daniel chapter 4 surrounding Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. O king, most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now, it's interesting that that Daniel uses four terms to describe Nebuchadnezzar's uh, rule. Kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. Now, there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar is a great and powerful figure, as men count such things. But everything which could be said of Belshazzar's predecessor, uh, even Nebuchadnezzar's bout with insanity, were things given him by Yahweh. Now, elaborating a bit more on Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4, we learn the additional details, that it was Yahweh who gave Nebuchadnezzar the authority to take life or to grant pardon to others. Well, this is the equivalent of Romans 13, Paul's assertion in verse 4, when God gives the sword of justice to the state. We also learn from Daniel that when Nebuchadnezzar had his mental collapse, he went out and dwelt with the wild donkeys. Now, that's quite a fall for a great king, is it not? All of this was ordained by Yahweh, who's sovereign over all things, including kings and their empires. And the lesson here for Belshazzar is that even as the great Nebuchadnezzar was forced to acknowledge that the Most High rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills, this is the same Yahweh against whom Belshazzar has just spent the evening committing acts of sacrilege and blasphemy And who would have continued to do so had Yahweh not intervened and ruined his party? Now Daniel brings the word of judgment to Belshazzar, who by now must know that this mysterious handwritten message is not going to be good news. So according to verses 22 through 23, Daniel tells the king, And you, his son, remember Nebuchadnezzar is his predecessor, his ideological predecessor, not his biological father. Belshazzar have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Well, here's Belshazzar, so jaded by his power and by his gushy life in the royal court that he saw himself as greater than all gods. He refuses to acknowledge that there's one far greater than he who has appointed this king, Belshazzar, to rule over this empire, 
the Babylonian Empire. And if the king had reflected upon that even for a moment, he would have realized that he should be humbling himself before Yahweh, the Lord of heaven. And by refusing to humble himself, Belshazzar is about to be truly humbled by a Persian battle sword at Yahweh's behest. But it's Belshazzar himself who spent his last night on earth partying and blaspheming Yahweh. And Daniel explains precisely how Belshazzar has lifted himself up against Yahweh. Daniel tells him what ought to be obvious, but which apparently is not. And the vessels of Yahweh's house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all your ways, and whose all your ways you have not honored. Now, the first way the king has lifted himself up against Yahweh is that he's ordered vessels from the Jerusalem temple to be brought to the royal palace to use at the party to be filled with wine and, and, and to- adult beverages, intoxicants, to praise the false god of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wooden stone. And by drinking toasts with Yahweh's vessel to these things, set apart for the worship of Yahweh, Belshazzar is committing blasphemy of the worst kind. He is guilty as charged. The second way in which Belshazzar has lifted himself up against Yahweh is when he and his guests praise these lifeless gods. What power do mere elements like gold and silver possess? You know, gold's beautiful, but can it answer your prayers? Can the elegant statue of the God you've had made from the finest gold, can that statue hear your prayers and answer them? These mere elements cannot possess knowledge. They cannot hear. And although it's not mentioned by Daniel, they cannot speak. This is self-evident in the fact that it's Yahweh who speaks by his own hand through a divinely appointed agent, writing a word of warning, a word of judgment on the wall of the king's palace while all these acts of blasphemy are, are going on. The third way in which Belshazzar has lifted himself up is by failing to acknowledge that it is Yahweh, not the mysterious forces of the universe, who gives the king his life and his breath. The king's life is in Yahweh's hands, not Marduk's. What does the king do with the life and the breath that Yahweh's given him? Well, he mocks and blasphemes the one who holds his life in his hand. And his fate for doing so? Yahweh will take that life from Belshazzar before sunup the next day. Well, after declaring to Belshazzar that his blasphemy of Yahweh is not gone unnoticed in the heavenly court, Daniel now interprets the handwriting which the king's wise men couldn't read. According to verse 24, Daniel tells the king, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Whose hand was it? Well, Daniel doesn't say exactly, but the king saw it, and it scared him tremendously. The hand was either that of an angel sent by God as his agent, or else it's the pre-incarnate Christ. But regardless of which divine agent this was, the hand which had written the message came, Daniel says, from the presence of God. In other words, the hand gave direct revelation to Belshazzar of impending judgment from Yahweh. 
Now, although none of the king's wise men could read the writing, Daniel can. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, Tekel and Parson. How many of you memorized that as kids in Sunday school? Now, these are three Aramaic words, and they're the subject of seemingly endless scholarly speculation, which we won't touch here. The writing's in Aramaic. All the characters of the letters probably ran together. And Daniel immediately sees the pattern. Three words, one repeated, each having three consonants. The three words are weights, or also names of coins, the mina, the shekel, and the half mina. But the measure of the weights, the coins, are not in descending order from the highest to the lowest, which may explain why the court magicians could not read the message, much less figure out its meaning. But Daniel's going to interpret the meaning of this, these words by using a semi-obvious bit of wordplay with each of the weights. He takes each word as a noun, converts it into a verb, and then uses it to evaluate Belshazzar's kingship and his shortcomings. Now, the first of these in verse 26 is explained by Daniel pretty clearly. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Now, the noun many or mina has been turned into a verb, counted, which is interpreted by Daniel as basically Belshazzar, man, your days are numbered. It's over. The second word is explained in verse 27. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So here again, Daniel turns a noun into a verb. It usually means to pay out. But in Daniel's wordplay, he interprets it to mean that the king is measured by Yahweh. He comes far short of what's expected. Similarly, the third word, parson or half, is also a noun now turned into a verb. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel's telling Belshazzar that the event foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's first dream is going to come to pass. The Babylonian Empire is going to give way to the Persian Empire before sunup. Now, just as in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, when Yahweh demonstrated the absolute superiority over the so-called gods of Babylon. Now he does the same with Belshazzar. And that harkens us back, if you know the Old Testament, to similar victories over the gods of the Pharaoh or the so-called gods of the Canaanites. By doing what the Babylonian wise men could not do, Daniel very clearly demonstrates a point the apostle Paul will later make in 1 Corinthians 1.25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, although by now we might expect that a man like Belshazzar would react in a drunken rage and have Daniel executed for his impudence before the king, instead, probably because people are watching, Belshazzar actually makes good on his promise before all of his guests. And so in verse 29 of Daniel 5, we read, Then Belshazzar gave a command. Daniel was clothed with purple A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, it's a good thing Daniel didn't care about such things because his new position is rather short-lived. Belshazzar didn't have to wait long to receive the judgment of Yahweh, which Yahweh had warned, because according to verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. 
The golden head of the statue now gives way to the silver chest and arms, exactly as foretold in the dream Yahweh gave to Nebuchadnezzar. But not only was Belshazzar dead by the next morning, the chapter ends with a rather solemn and, and interesting declaration. And Darius the Mede, or Cyrus, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, we ought to notice that Darius, Cyrus, is the only person in all of Daniel's prophecy whose age is mentioned. Now, why that? Well, this isn't just information for curiosity's sake, because it reminds Daniel's audience that Darius was born at the very height of Babylonian power, 601 B.C., and now the Babylonian kingdom was Darius's, now part of the Persian Empire. Now, that really matters to the Jews in exile in Babylon because that information, that birth date, that, that number of years, that reminds them that their time in exile in Babylon is almost over. The 70 years is about to come to an end. And that's why we are given uh, Darius's uh, age. Now, because they're one and the same in an empire like this one, king and kingdom fall together. Belshazzar's open contempt of Yahweh reflects the general attitude of the entire empire, which had grown very used to military and economic dominance. And so starting with Belshazzar, the Babylonians saw themselves as completely self-sufficient, without need of anyone's help, without need of God, without need of looking beyond themselves. And so starting with Belshazzar, uh, they're unwilling to do what Moses has exhorted all people to do in Psalm 90. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Well, Belshazzar hasn't numbered his days, so Yahweh's numbered them for him. As one writer puts it, Belshazzar in this chapter represents a vivid picture of the fool, the atheist, who at the end can only brazen it out with the help of alcohol that blots out the stark reality. Well, I doubt that that... uh, great amount of alcohol consumed by the king lessened the pain very much when the Persians put him to the sword. Now, as for application from a, a passage of judgment like this, it's important to let the, to let the events recounted here you know, push us beyond the mere consideration of the personal circumstances of the last king of a dying empire. Now, that's a tragic and compelling story in its own right. But Daniel's point throughout his prophecy so far has been that Yahweh is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world. There are divine limits set for earthly kings, limits which Yahweh will not allow his creatures to go beyond. And so Yahweh allows the Babylonian Empire to conquer Judah and destroy the temple because Israel has fallen into idolatry and is unfaithful to Yahweh's covenant Lord. And yet, the Babylonians are going to be published for proclaiming their gods as superior to Yahweh, and for mocking and blaspheming Yahweh. Yahweh is not going to allow this to stand. He is going to keep his promise. He's going to bring his people back to the promised land after their 70 years of exile. Now, 
Worldly power carries with it great responsibility in Yahweh's sight. And an instant like this one reminds us that this is the case then just as it is now. Yahweh holds all the kings of the earth responsible for their actions. He will judge them for how they treat their subjects as well as how they treat their enemies. And in this case, Belshazzar received his word of condemnation before he died, although most tyrants are forced to wait until the moment of death and they have judgment to hear theirs. But Yahweh gives kings, he gives presidents, he gives prime ministers their power, he holds them accountable for how they use it. And the knowledge that world leaders, even despotic ones, all must answer to their creator is intended to bring us hope and confidence in God's purposes. Now it's important to consider Yahweh's word to Belshazzar through Daniel as being echoed later on by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.18, verses 18 to 25, our New Testament lesson, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, just as Belshazzar did, just as all the Babylonians did, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. Gold, silver, bronze, wood, stone, all of it. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, Daniel's account singles out Belshazzar because of his gross blasphemy and his very important role in redemptive history. He is, after all, the last ruler of the great Babylonian empire. Let's not mistake, make the mistake of thinking that Daniel's warning echoed by Paul is not every bit as true today as it was on the night of October 11, 539 B.C. God has revealed himself to all. No one can offer any excuse for worshiping and serving created things, whether that be the elements themselves or more creative idols, fame and celebrity and power and wealth, which we moderns are more apt to seek after. Beloved, we're as prone to the twin sins we see in Belshazzar worshiping and serving created things and failing to number our days. We're prone to those same sins just as he was. Now, one final bit of application we must take from Daniel 5, and that is that apart from God's grace in our lives, we'll remain servants of the idols we create for ourselves. And we'll spend our days living as though God does not exist or matter much and it's only there to help us in times of trouble. Well, if we believe in Jesus, it's only because God has called us out of darkness, idolatry, and indifference to God, and applied to us the saving work of Jesus Christ. His life of obedience, his death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead. 
And so therefore, let us be thankful that instead of this morning, handwriting appearing on the wall, warning us that this is our last day, we see the hand, dare I say it, the flesh of God, the blood of God in a different way, extended to us this morning through the signs and seals of the bread and wine. This is my body. This is my blood given for you for the full and complete remission of sins. And so we come here this morning not to be warned of impending judgment, but to be reminded of God's favor because of God's promise to us in Jesus Christ the forgiveness of all our sins, including our idolatry and including our sinful indifference to the sovereign, redeeming God. Amen.